Hi, writers. Welcome to our new episode on writing fiction, both novels and short stories. This is Jim Thayer. I mention novels and short stories because almost everything we talk about in these episodes applies to both. And almost everything we talk about applies to all genres in fiction because successful stories are written using the same techniques, irrespective of genre. I'd like to talk about techniques new writers resist because they might seem counterintuitive. I've been writing and teaching for quite a while, and for a number of years I was a freelance editor of novels, and in that time I've come across fiction writing techniques that are counterintuitive. These are writing techniques that might not seem right at first glance to new writers, but are right. They are the techniques that new writers who haven't studied the craft often don't know and often resist because they seem counterintuitive. I'd like to list some here. I've spoken about them in prior episodes, but I like the idea of talking about counterintuitive techniques, uh, techniques new writers might not know and often might do wrongly until they study the craft. Here are some. The first one is probably the most important, and that's get the story going right away with no backstory and little explanation. Backstory is an event that happened before the novel's first page. It's history, usually about a character, a character's background. This is the most important and most widespread and damaging uh, technique that writers, new writers get wrong because it kills a story's prospects. And it's an extremely difficult concept for many new writers. The instinct for a new writer is to set up things, see, uh, let the reader know how things are, lay them out, including character histories, and then, after all that, begin the story's forward momentum. It's a bad mistake because the story can't recover from it. The agent or publisher sees this big technical mistake and puts the manuscript down without reading more, uh, without getting to the story. Uh, I know I'm like a chihuahua with a squeaky toy on this subject. The technique is get the story going before inserting backstory and explanation. Here's an example. I'm going to exaggerate this mistake to make the point, but it's not much of an exaggeration, judging from some of the manuscripts I've seen. Here it is. This is the first page, the first paragraphs of our novel. Wearing sequined tights and a white wig, Jenny Robinson released the steel beam shifted her right foot out onto the tightrope and slid forward on the wire. She tipped the balancing pole up and down, just slight movements. Below, 2,000 spectators followed her as she slid farther and farther out onto the wire. The calliope rang out with tense cords. Jenny's father had been billed as the great Gandalfi, one of Europe's most daring circus performers. He had begun his career being shot out of a cannon in Marseille in the 1980s, but his athleticism showed early, and soon he was on the trapeze. 
And our new writer goes on and on about the great Gandolfi and his career uh, in France and how Jenny got to America and, and many, many other things. See what I've done? Three sentences into Jenny's exciting circus tightrope walk, and it's about to get more exciting because her envious enemy, another tightrope walker, has intentionally put a powerful tranquilizer into her water bottle. But after three sentences, I've stopped the story. I've stopped the story's forward momentum to start backstory, a lecture about her family history, about her father. I've been laughably obvious in this example to make a point, but this mistake Stopping a story early to add backstory and too much explanation is so important. And it's so easy to avoid. Don't do it. The reader can wait for backstory and explanation. The reader doesn't need to know everything about the characters right away. This is a tough concept for new writers, and I can understand it. Uh, I tend to, I like backstory, and I want to get it in there. But it's a mistake. Here's a rough guideline. Wait for 30 or 40 pages before any backstory is inserted. And here's a related thought about backstory. You've heard me mention this. Most all novels have some backstory, but keep the story's uh, forward momentum going. Uh, When we need to insert backstory, it should be, one, important, and two, short. Here's another counterintuitive technique. Argument is the best dialogue. I've spoken in earlier episodes about this important technique, and it's counterintuitive for new writers because in real life, most of us don't like to argue. So new writers avoid arguments in their stories. Here's an example of an argument, a short example. Get out of here. But I live here. This is my home. Her father yelled, It's not your home any longer. Not after what you did. Get out. Don't take anything with you. It's all mine. Holy cow. This would be awful in real life, but it's wonderful in fiction. Here's the opposite, a non-argument dialogue. I'm thinking of getting a master's degree, Abby said. In what? Literature. I like to read. Her mother asked, It might be fun. See the difference? New writers might not know the technique, and in real life, who likes to argue? Not many folks. But stories are not real life. That's a a difficult lesson for some new writers. Here's another technique that many new writers find counterintuitive. Don't use dialogue tag modifiers. As you know, a dialogue tag is, He said... In the sentence, he said, put the knife down. And it's Ruby said in, I don't have a knife, Ruby said. New writers want to add dialogue tag modifiers such as urgently. He said urgently, put the knife down. And uh, they want to add a modifier such as exasperatingly in, I don't have a knife, Ruby said exasperatingly. These dialogue tag modifiers sound pasted on, and many professional writers, including Elmore Leonard in his famous list, laugh at them. We should avoid them. Here's another counterintuitive technique. Uh, 
in our dialogue don't have small talk. I have mentioned this recently, so I'll be brief about it. Small talk. How are you? How's John doing in school? Did you take boots to the vet? I wish it had stopped raining. Is needed in our real lives. It's a conversation lubricant. It isn't needed in fictional dialogue. The reader should have the sense of dropping into the conversation after the small talk has ended and leaving the conversation before it would have ended in real life with stuff like, I'm going for a coffee and, and uh, say hi to Don. Here's another important t- technique that new writers often get wrong because it seems counterintuitive. The technique is keep the point of view tight. As you know, point of view is a way of saying who is witnessing the events, whose eyes are seeing the action, whose brain can the visitor uh, can the reader visit. When when the reader visits a character's mind, hearing or seeing what that character hears or sees, feeling what that character feels or reading that character's thought, uh, that character has the point of view. Generally, a scene should have only one point of view. That is, the reader should stay inside the mind of one character. Otherwise, the plot takes on a, a dizzying aspect as the point of view jumps here and there. Some new writers simply aren't aware of this concept of point of view, and so they end up with something like this. Marianne gestured widely. The backyard is a quarter of an acre. She thought they have a six-year-old and a four-year-old. A big backyard is a huge attraction. Lindsay wondered if the place structure was safe. She pointed at it. How old is that slide, do you think? Her husband, Mark, shook his head. He wasn't fond of Marianne, the real estate agent, but she was among his wife, Lindsay's closest friends. He said, I think we'll need to replace the slide if we buy the house. It's rusty. It'll need to be replaced. See what the reader has done here? Visited the minds of three characters in three paragraphs. In the first paragraph, she thought gives the point of view to Marianne. In the second paragraph, Lindsay wondered gives the point of view to Lindsay, and in the third paragraph, he wasn't fond of Marianne, visits Mark's mind, giving him the point of view. This jumping around with the point of view makes the story less believable, uh, because jumping around from mind to mind can't be done in real life. And beyond the technical flaw, it's a singular mark of a new and amateur writer, this jumping around with with the point of view. Here's another strong technique new writers often get wrong. It's, a sm- it's small, but it's a good one. Uh, new writers sometimes try to punch up their sentences by adding exclamation points at the end of the sentences. Exclamation points make anything resemble a teen's diary. F. Scott Fitzgerald said, Cut out all these exclamation points. An exclamation point is like laughing at your own joke. That's F. Scott Fitzgerald. Our sentences should be exciting enough without exclamation points. If we reach the end of a sentence we are writing and are tempted to add an exclamation point, uh, consider going back and 
adding a stronger verb to the sentence. That'll likely fix it. And here's another technique. It's counterintuitive, but it's important. We should show the reason for the emotion, not so much the emotion. Uh, new writers often make this mistake. It can be summarized in a sentence. If a character in our story cries, the reader won't have to. This principle applies to weeping and also to other emotions such as joy, gratitude, remorse. We writers should develop the reason for the emotion. What caused her to weep? What caused her to be joyful? Uh, set it out and build it up and then restrain our character from hugely reacting. Here's an example in a romance. In our story, the bulk of the novel, Jason has been in love with Liz since he was six years old. She liked him but wouldn't have him. She played around, married someone else, divorced. She is worn out by life and they are now both 35. Jason has been skillfully courting her Nothing too forward, nothing needy. Uh, she might have been responding. And finally, our scene near the end of this story is this dialogue. I've loved you since first grade, he said. She gripped her hands together, I know. Those years ago, I tried to make things work out like I, like I had hoped they would with you, but I must have done something wrong. She said, it wasn't you, Jason. I didn't know what I wanted. It was me. He smiled. I've been hanging around you for a while now, the last couple of months. I've noticed. She grinned back at him. It's been nice. He looked at the floor, then found the courage to bring up his gaze into her eyes. I want to ask you something. The answer is yes, she said. He blinked. I haven't asked it yet. It doesn't matter what the question is. She reached for his hand. The answer is yes. End of scene. Isn't that romantic? Shouldn't life work in impossibly romantic ways like this? After reading chapters of Jason's struggles, and after uh, grown, the reader's grown to really like Jason and, and, and Liz too, uh, we hope for the best for him. The reader is just swept up in this awkward and surprising and loving exchange in the in the fulfillment of Jason's lifelong dream. End of scene. But the new writer isn't done. The new writer uh, is maybe afraid the reader won't get how happy Jason is and how happy Liz is. He, the new writer, wants to show the character's reactions. So the new writer adds, his voice was ragged, Oh, my Lord, thank you. I did it, she laughed. Yeah, you did. He did a little sidestep and gave a Kirk Gibson arm pump. He laughed and grabbed her by the shoulders. They walked toward an ice cream joint. Let's celebrate. She laughed along with him and reached for his hand. I could go on. The problem with these added sentences is that when the reader sees the character's happiness played out with laughter and little motions, the reader is less inclined to be happy for them. The joy they, dis they display reduces joy for the reader. This is counterintuitive, but it almost always works. Uh, we should, uh, the writer should build the reason for the emotions and then cut away after the climax.
And here's an, another technique new writers often don't know, and it, it is counterintuitive. The technique is keep interior monologue to a minimum. You've heard me talk about this. As you know, interior monologue is a character thinking. Uh, you've heard me say a character's thoughts are the least interesting element of a novel, less interesting than action and dialogue. Uh, this is another counterintuitive thing, one that might be resisted by new writers. Uh, because a new writer can visit a character's mind, she does, and stays there for long periods of thinking, often thinking called navel-gazing, where a character... Uh, ponders how she feels about things and sharpens and sharpens the emotional pencil. Sometimes it goes on so long that the reader gets the impression the writer is analyzing herself as a therapy. The technique is simple. Stay out of the character's mind as much as possible. Most everything the writer wants the reader to know about a character's thoughts can be shown to the reader by action and dialogue. Here's, here's interior monologue. She thought, I love him. It's interior monologue. We visited her mind. Instead, she reached for his hand and said, I love you. That's action and dialogue, and it's so much more interesting for the reader. Here's another counterintuitive technique. Avoid was and were as verbs. Uh, as you know, was and were are the past tense of the verb to be, verb phrase to be. A phrase that uses were or was is called a verb phrase. For example, in the sentence, I was happy, the verb phrase is was happy. The main verb is was. Uh, when we can, we writers should avoid was and were as verbs. And new writers might not even think about this. So their paragraph is, a new writer's paragraph might be, I was running toward the train, but it was pulling out, and my fiancé was waving at me from a window. Here all the wases. Instead, it's better this way. I ran toward the train. It pulled out, and my fiancé waved at me from a window. Hear the difference? In the first version, was has made the action feel tired and long in the past. The second version, without was, is more lively and immediate. We should always challenge the use of was and were. Can we avoid them and, and so make our sentences stronger? Here's another technique that new writers often don't know, and it's counterintuitive. We should use the active voice, not the passive voice. The active voice is where the subject performs the action expressed in the verb. The, the active voice is where the subject acts. He threw the ball is an active sentence. The passive voice is where the subject receives the action expressed in the verb. The subject is acted upon. The ball was thrown by the boy. So here's a passive sentence. The team's owner was Don Ripley. The active version, Don Ripley owned the team. Here's one more, uh, the passive sentence. The mountain was conquered by Edmund Hillary and Tenseng Norday. The active version, Edmund Hillary and Tenseng, Nor Tenseng Norday conquered the mountain. It's a big difference between active and passive. Uh, new writers are often unaware of the difference. 
or might not know how important the act of voice is, it might be counterintuitive that there are several forms for a sentence, and if there are, what's the difference? There's a big difference. The act of sentence makes prose more vivid for readers. This has been my list of techniques new writers often don't know and techniques that might initially uh, they might initially resist as counterintuitive, but these are strong techniques that will almost always improve our story. Cats and writers go hand in hand, history shows. Did you see the, uh, the report of a study about cats that was all over the internet recently? According to CNN, in a study published in the journal Behavioral Processes last month, two U.S. scientists counted 276 different facial expressions when house cats interact, interact with one another. Quote, our study demonstrates that cat communication is more complex than previously assumed, said study co-author Brittany Florikowitz. Uh, who is an evolutionary psychologist at Lyon College in Arkansas. She told that to CNN. Uh, to collect this data, 53 cats were filmed at a local cat cafe between August 2021 and June 2022. The research, quote, assessed the differences in expression when a with a coding system designed specifically for cats called the Cat Facial Action Coding System, and looked at the number and types of facial muscle movements. The study added, CNN said, that muscle movements associated with biological processes such as breathing and yawning were not included. They were not included. Uh, let me insert, that's mostly what my cat Jack does in life. He breathes and yawns, so he, he wouldn't have contributed much to this story. The paper detail that a friendly expression is shown when the ears and whiskers move forward while the, while the eyes close. And an, express, an aggressive cat has constricted pupils, ears flattened against the head, and a tongue swipe of the lip. That's from the CNN article. Jack must be a discount cat. We adopted him from Paws here in Seattle. He only has two expressions. One is feed me, and the other is pay attention to me. And, and actually, now that I think about it, they're the, both the same expressions. So I guess he only has one. The study finds 276 facial expressions on cats. Jack has one. He's on my desk as I speak right now, staring at me, and he likes as he likes to spend his days, and he's wearing his one facial expression. Uh, but I like that expression. He's a cat. His one expression is cat. I have been reading and have been fascinated by Mason Curry's book, Daily Rituals, about how creators work. Here is how the novelist Anne Beattie works. Uh, Mason Curry says, Beattie works best at night. Quote, and this is Ann Beattie, I really believe in day people and night people. My favorite hours are 10 o'clock to 3 a.m. for writing. I really don't adhere to schedules at all and don't have the slightest desire to do that, she said. 
Mason Curry says, she doesn't write every night. Quote, I really don't adhere to schedules at all, Ann Beattie said, and don't have the slightest desire to do that. The times that I've tried that, when I have been in a slump and I try to get out of it by saying, come on, Ann, sit down and at that typewriter, I've gotten in a worse slump. It's better if I just let it ride. That's Ann Beattie. As a result, Mason Curry says, she often won't write anything for months. Quote, I've learned I can't force it, she said. Mason Curry adds, but that doesn't mean that she is able to relax and enjoy herself during these fallow periods. Rather, she says it's like having an almost permanent case of writer's block. And Beattie said, I certainly am a moody and I would say not very happy person. I feel sorry for her, such a talented writer and not a happy person. I hope you were born an optimist optimist as I was. My glass is half full, not half empty. I hope yours is the same way. We've come to the end of this episode. Until next time, this is Jim Thayer. Please keep tapping those keys. 